Over the last decade, a group of California scientists has quietly amassed the biggest sleep database ever assembled. It includes every dozing off, every wake up, every REM cycle, every chunk of deep sleep from 15 billion nights of human slumber. It can tell us the average person's bedtime, whether men or women sleep longer, and which city is really the city that never sleeps. These scientists work at Fitbit, the company that sells fitness bands, and for them, revealing your sleep patterns is only the beginning. Their longer-term goal is to spot diseases before you even have symptoms. Diseases of your heart, your brain, your lungs, all picked up by a bracelet on your wrist. But how? I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Season 1, Episode 12, How the Fitbit Knows You're Dreaming. What would you guess is the average American bedtime? Turns out it's 11.21 p.m., But women sleep more than men, 25 minutes longer a night. People on the East Coast go to bed seven minutes later than the West Coasters. And Boston residents have the least consistent bedtime of any city in America. On average, they go to bed on weekends 39 minutes later than on weeknights. That's what you call social jet lag. We know all this thanks to the largest collection of sleep data ever gathered, totaling 15 billion nights of sleep records. This data has been collected by Fitbit, the company that makes those fitness bands and activity watches. But I'll be honest, I don't get it. I don't see how a strap on your wrist can know that you're sleeping and not, you know, just lying on the couch watching a movie. And as though reading your mind from your arm isn't improbable enough, get this. Eventually, the hope is that these bands will detect diseases. Already, Fitbits and Apple Watches can alert you if they spot medical anomalies like atrial fibrillation or irregular heart rate. But research suggests that they could soon offer early warnings of problems like Alzheimer's, diabetes, and even COVID. We'll get to that, but let's start with sleep. Why is it useful to be able to look at our sleep? Why do we care? Sleep is when you heal. That's when memories are being created, when you exercise. That putting strain on your heart, putting strain on your muscles, that's when your muscles are healing. 
good night's sleep and the right amount of sleep is really important. This is Eric Friedman. He's the chief technology officer of Fitbit, a company he and his buddy James Park founded in 2007. There have been studies that, you know, being sleep deprived and being drunk on the job are actually very similar. Your, your brain's not working right. And so, you know, good cognitive function is really important to success, happiness, and safety. Uh, open parenthesis here, Fitbit is a commercial company, so I think a disclaimer might be in order. Nobody paid anybody anything for this episode, and I've edited out anything that sounds remotely markety. Also, a lot of what you'll hear applies equally to Apple Watches, Garmin's, and any other fitness trackers. Okay, close parenthesis. Now back to the central question, how a wristband knows what stage of sleep you're in. How can something on your arm know what's going on in your brain? Seems like it's like trying to figure out what object was dropped into the middle of the lake by observing the ripples reaching the shore. I mean, should we even trust a wristband? Obviously, the best way to measure your sleep is to get hooked up to the machines at a professional sleep lab, right? Well, yes, it is the gold standard because that's where most of the literature is actually originally developed. It's not necessarily the single best way to always get a sleep measurement. Turns out there are a few downsides to those labs that hadn't occurred to me. You've got basically lots of electrodes coming out of your head, going to something you have to wear. They put on a motion tracker. They put on heart rate trackers. They put on brain activity trackers. They put on respiration trackers to actually see your breathing. You can't really roll around. Like, you know, if something's tugging at you and things like that, I've got friends who can barely sleep in a hotel, you know, let alone like you know, if you're in kind of a hospital room, it's very contrived. Oh, and one more thing about sleep labs. Those are multi-thousand dollars for one night. So Fitbit's sleep data comes from much less contrived, less expensive, more continuous measuring equipment, wrist actigraphy. Yes, believe it or not, there's a term for the art of measuring sleep by putting sensors on your arm, wrist actigraphy. Now, in the beginning, Fitbits didn't measure sleep at all. They existed solely to count your steps. So the very first Fitbits, we had a, a clip-based tracker, but, you know, a size of um, a really thick paper clip. Well, we've got an accelerometer in here. An accelerometer is a tiny motion sensor. It measures how much it's being jostled in all three dimensions. To count your steps, obviously, all it has to do is measure the swinging of your arm as you walk. Oh, okay. Turns out it's not the swinging of your arm, or at least not just the swinging of your arm. Every time you step, your body shakes, and it's amazing. Like, you see all these ripples of on the body when people step. It kind of bounces like a bowl full of jello, as it were. And so the trick is to make sure you know what are human-generated ripples, as opposed to, for example, you're riding a bus. When the bus bounces, you shouldn't get a step. It's definitely a very challenging problem, but we've feel like we've done a really good job of solving that. By applying some clever statistical analysis to the data spewed out by the accelerometer, fitness trackers can find the signals in all that noise. They can figure out how many steps you've taken, whether you're meandering aimlessly or running for your life. But counting footsteps is one thing. Counting sheep is a whole nother problem. Let's see if we can guess how it works. You've got a motion sensor on your wrist So probably whenever your wrist is in motion, you're awake. And when it's completely still, that must mean you're asleep. 
the human body is rarely completely still. Like even if your body is, like if your arm is on your body or you're sleeping, your heart causes your body to shake. And we can actually see that. Uh, you can see the respiration signal. You're also seeing your, your partner moving if you're sharing a bed or, you know, you're co-sleeping with your little kid. You see that kid bouncing too, or your dog or your cat. Um, and so the trick is teasing out all those different signals. Wow. So you guys in software have to interpret all that stuff? Uh, yes. It's people who are really good at math and statistics and signal processing. You know, this data is basically like static and they'll run it through kind of various, almost like graphs where you can visualize color spectrums or all these different ways of visualizing. And then they start kind of looking for patterns. And in the early sleep days, we actually were looking at video and said, okay, we saw that person move. We saw this thing showing up in their brain signal. We're like, can we see this in this other signal? You'd put people in an actual sleep lab and then correlate what you see with the data from the accelerometer? We got early people who were willing to let us use night vision video cameras, which were not as common back when we were starting in 2008. We got a number of those would actually videotape people sleeping. By 2009, the first Fitbits could detect sleep. It was super basic. The Fitbit couldn't even tell when to start measuring sleep. As you got into bed, you literally had to press a button that meant, I'm going to sleep now. It was so 2009. But in the morning, you'd check your phone and you'd see a graph of how you slept overnight. I actually found a screenshot from the very first app. It looks like what you would find when you woke up was a graph that showed just you're asleep here and you're awake during these spikes. There's there's no gradations. Well, there's also the um, how long it took you to fall asleep, so sleep onset, which is actually a really interesting thing because there's this, something called sleep pressure. Everyone assumes it's really good to like, you know, second you lie down and you fall asleep. A lot of people do that just because they run themselves to exhaustion. I, I probably fall into that category. And it turns <sighs> out too much sleep pressure actually probably indicates you're not getting enough sleep and is also not a good thing. I call it sleep juice. <laughs> so if I, if I go to bed and if I fall asleep quickly and then I'm awakened for a baby or a pet or something and then try to go to sleep again, it's harder for me to fall asleep. And as I explained to my wife, it's because I've used up all my sleep juice. I, I think there's a new metric there. You, you should publish. <laughs> There's no actual sleep juice? No, not that I've encountered before. There's actually multiple factors going on there because your body's really just a giant set of chemical and electrical reactions. By 2010, you no longer had to tell your band when you were going to bed and when you were getting up. The Fitbit engineers got it to figure that out for itself with the help of fellow employees. We started asking, you know, Fitbit employees, by that time we were several hundred people, we asked them to kind of go back and do logging. Like, when did you get in bed? When do you think you fell asleep? When did you get out of bed? And we then would use a combination of human eyes plus kind of a whole bunch of specialized machine learning algorithms to kind of train a model that uh, would then figure out how long did it take you to fall asleep and when did you fall asleep. How did these early Fitbits know the difference between you asleep and you sitting in a movie theater, not moving? Turns out you actually are stiller when you're sitting in a movie theater uh, than, when you, than when you're sleeping. Stiller? Yeah, people move a surprising amount in a very specific way uh, when, when they're sleeping. But also, like they're, again, they're different types of sleepers. Like in the early days of Fitbit, um, when we first launched, we found there were a number of people, a, a sizable percentage of people, where it showed them being awake all the time. And obviously, it's not true. And we ended up classifying those people as twitchy sleepers. These are people who are 
a normal, like they're, they're sleeping. You see their, their brain activity, their heart rate, all those things. They just happen to move. They're just kind of making tons and tons of little movements. Wow. 20 or 30% of the population had this characteristic. And we had to kind of tweak our algorithms to make sure we supported that, that population. And that was the hard part, to make sleep detection work for all kinds of different sleepers. You know, what kind of sleepers does it not work for? Um, which turns out most people it does work well for. But it's just good to know that there are this class of people who move, thrash a ton, but are kind of technically classified as asleep based on brain activity. Twitchy sleepers. I know these are not twitchy sleepers. These are kind of, they're well beyond twitchy sleeper. Oh, okay. So so there's twitchy sleepers and there's thrashy sleepers. Yes. And that might be the, the official diagnosis too that your doctor would give you for thrashy sleeper. Twitchy sleeper, that, that's a Fitbit thing. Once we combine that with my sleep juice concept, I think I might just revolutionize the industry. Okay. At this point, Fitbit was selling wristbands that could tell when you were asleep and when you were awake. The next goal, detecting what stages of sleep you were in through the night. You know, deep sleep, REM sleep, that kind of thing. That was a level of expertise that Fitbit Inc. didn't have until Connor Heenahan came aboard. I started out by studying electronic engineering. And from that, I went on to do a PhD in a biomedical signal processing. And that brought me on a voyage uh, to a company called ResMed, which develops sleep technology for treating sleep apnea. Eric Friedman snapped up Connor Heenahan. A few years later, Google snapped up Fitbit. Today, Connor's title is Senior Staff Research Scientist at Google's Consumer Health Research Division. But I think of him as Dr. Sleep. So I worked with quite a few other researchers to really try and accelerate the ability to track stages of sleep. And, and at that point, was it well established what the stages are? The American Academy of Sleep Medicine had defined four stages of sleep, which are uh, N1, N2, N3, and REM. So the only thing we did is N1 and N2 are both types of light sleep. We decided to just simplify the task by collapsing the N1 and N2 into a single class of light sleep. But everything else is then mapping directly to what the ASM defines. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. I know about REM sleep. That's where you do most of your dreaming. It stands for rapid eye movement because your eyes are closed, but your eyeballs are darting around like you're looking at stuff. So, for example, what they call N3 sleep is what a Fitbit device calls deep sleep. Oh, and I've heard of deep sleep, too. Obviously, that's the most important stage. No, I, I, that's, it is true that deep sleep is a very interesting stage because it tends to be when you secrete more human growth hormone, which is very important for uh, muscle repair and sort of physical repair. Uh, obviously, for adolescents, it's important in their growth phase. Also, REM sleep. A lot of science is supporting that REM sleep is when memory formation and consolidation is most active. Uh, so that has obviously some importance for the, the overall system. And then the light sleep is kind of the glue that keeps it all together. So I think having, a, let's say, a healthy mix of the various stages of sleep is probably what most sleep scientists will be, will be hoping for. I mean, right. Isn't that what I said? And is it safe to say that Using the wrist movements alone, it would have been impossible to develop measurement of these stages? Certainly with our experience, we were not able to distinguish between the different stages of sleep reliably with just movement. And so what we did is we added in the heart rate signal 
to add into the movement signal. Here we go. Come to Papa. Remember, my burning question for this episode is, how can a thing on your wrist know what's going on in your brain? And the answer turns out to be by looking at your heart. In 2015, Fitbit unveiled its first band with a heart rate sensor. Obviously, there's no, like, little tiny stethoscope that pulls out of this thing. Instead, trackers like the Fitbit, the Apple Watch, the Garmin, and so on use a pulse-measuring technique called photoplethysmography. Wow, what a great Scrabble word. What a great word, period. Photoplethysmography trackers, or PPG if you're in a hurry, have these tiny green LED lights on the back pressed against your skin. Now, the reason blood looks red is because it reflects red light into our eyes. Conversely, blood absorbs green light. So those green LEDs flash hundreds of times a second, shining through your skin into your blood vessels. Your wrist tracker also has a couple of tiny photodiodes, kind of like cameras, that measure how much of the green light bounces back up. Less reflected light means more blood flowing in that moment. In other words, that's a heartbeat. So what's the relationship between your heart rate and your sleep? Simple. When you're asleep, your heartbeat slows down. God dang it. All right, Eric. So if it's not the heart rate slowing down, what is it? It's not just your heart rate. It's something called HRV, heart rate variability, which is the beat-to-beat variation. Okay. So heart rate variability is the important thing, not the heart rate itself. You know, heart rate's important too, but we have a motion signal, a heart rate signal, and a heart rate variability signal, which all factor in to, to different pieces of kind of understanding that sleep stage. It seems like if we want to know what heart rate variability has to do with it, we should ask Dr. Sleep, Connor Heenan. For example, when you're in a deep sleep stage, your heart rate tends to be very regular and doesn't vary very much. Conversely, when you're in REM sleep, your heart rate tends to be bouncing around a lot. It's as if you're all, you know, it's almost as if you're awake and when you dream about going up a stairs, you're actually your heart rate might actually be accelerating at that point to, ah. to almost as if you were going up the stairs. So there's a lot more variability in your heart rate during REM sleep as say compared to deep sleep. So that's the patterns that our machine learning algorithms are trying to find. And that, dear listener, is how your heart sends the blood that reflects through your skin to tell your wrist what your brain is doing when you sleep. And if you're still there, you may be wondering at this point, why? What kind of painful nerds care so much about their biometrics that they need a gadget to show them graphs of their sleep every night? After the break, you'll find out why you should care, why everyone should care. I'll let Connor give you a little hint. One of the things I'm, I'm hoping to accomplish with this episode is the context of sleep science. Where are we on the road? How good is it in the big picture? I would hope we're 50, 60% of the journey there. So I don't think we're 95% of the way there because I think there are still things we can improve. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy 
the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. C4 Smart Energy. Stay focused. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. And one more ad here. In 2007, John Holdren, Barack Obama's senior science advisor, said something that became famous in climate change circles. He said, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. The question is what the mix is going to be. So mitigation means trying to stop climate change, stop burning oil, eat less beef, fly less. And yeah, we need to do all of that hard and fast. But nobody ever talks about the second part, adaptation. The coping strategies. So far, the only people doing much adaptation are governments and corporations. So where does that leave you? As an individual, you can't build a seawall. You can't move farms farther north. There is exactly one book that answers that question, and it's my book, How to Prepare for Climate Change. It's where to live, how to invest, what to eat, how to build, what insurance you need, how to talk to your kids, and how to prepare for the extremes that are coming your way. Floods, fires, heat waves, superstorms, and so on. How to Prepare for Climate Change by that entertaining fellow, David Pogue. Welcome back. We spent the last 20 minutes or so tracking the evolution of sleep measurement by wearables like the Fitbit. But now, at last, we come to some news you can use. First, we've got some advice for getting better sleep from Google's Connor Heenahan, who spent his entire career studying people sleeping. Obviously, I'm not a medical doctor, so I'm, I'm pretty careful. I don't want to mislead people. I, I try to stick to the things that are pretty well accepted and, and like non-medical. You're trying to have a really good wind-down routine before bed, um, trying to keep your exercise up. It's, it's not very exciting, but it's the reality is that's, that's what works best for people. And how do you feel about the advice of cool room, dark and quiet? Uh, I strongly approve of it. 
Oh, and one more scrap of advice from co-founder Eric Friedman about the power of peaceful thinking. We've done studies looking at different types of meditation content, uh, what tends to work for different people, and impact on sleep. And it's actually really significant. Um, So, for example, if you look at deep sleep, people who do meditation can get up to about 10 minutes more of deep sleep, which doesn't sound like very much. But if you look at a lot of the pharmacological solutions, they give you about 15 minutes more of deep sleep. So this is pretty darn close to a pharmacological thing. Meditation can be huge. Translation, scientifically speaking, meditating before bed is almost as good as sleeping pills. And if you do have a wearable that tracks your sleep stages, some further advice from Dr. Sleep. People say, hey, I only got one and a half hours of deep sleep, but I was in bed for eight hours. You know, is there something wrong with me? And that's absolutely not the case. So typically an adult gets maybe 15 to 20% of their night in deep sleep, and that's healthy. That's the way it should be. The second thing which we found is kind of a big learning curve for our users. Again, the first time they get a Fitbit device and they they look at it and they say, oh my God, it says I was awake for an hour last night. Um, You know, this is terrible. Again, it's normal for people to be awake for 5, 10, 15% of the night. Nearly all of those awakenings are those little small uh, 30 seconds, one minute things where your body, your brain effectively wakes up a little bit enough to maybe move position and then goes right back to sleep. And that, again, is very healthy. Okay, so if you take all of that advice, you might assume that it adds up to one overarching goal, one important, life-extending, health-improving goal. Getting more sleep. Getting as much sleep as possible is the key to feeling rested. Just sleeping more doesn't necessarily make you feel more rested. You heard that right. According to Fitbit's 15 billion nights of sleep data, there's actually something more important than sleep amount, and that's bedtime consistency. How does your sleep line up with your natural circadian rhythm? I'm sure we've all had that experience with jet lag where you know, you're trying to sleep at a time which is not natural. Even if you do sleep, you still feel you know, pretty whacked out <laughs> when you try to get up at a time. You know, and that's because there are other things going on in your body, like your kidney function, your digestion, which are all trying to do things on their time scale. And whoa, like suddenly we're six hours off. You, your body just doesn't feel right. So it, it's not always just about how long you sleep in terms of how well rested you feel. Jet lag is an extreme example of bad bedtime consistency. One metric you could use for general sleep effectiveness or quality is is what's called efficiency. So basically, if you're eight hours in bed and you sleep for seven hours out of the eight, your efficiency is seven over eight, uh, which is whatever, 87%. And that will be a really good efficiency. Um, One of the things we found is that people who have a more regular bedtime are more likely to have that, that higher efficiency and higher sleep quality. So, you know, if you can go to bed more or less at the same time every day, get up more or less at the same time every day, you are, you are optimizing your chances of having a, a sort of efficient sleep with the best distribution of the uh, sleep stages as well. For me, this has all been a fascinating intellectual journey, a look inside a big tech company to see how science and data analysis shapes the evolution of its products. But what I wasn't prepared for was how early these scientists believe we are on that journey. One of the big questions uh, that sleep scientists have is, if you sleep less than, say, six hours a night, do you actually have a higher risk of dying early? Do you have a higher risk of heart disease? 
there's still a lot of um, confounding or conflicting data on whether short sleepers do worse than, say, a person who's seven hours a night. We still at a relatively early stage of being able to answer. But here's the thing. Fitbits and Garmins and Apple Watches aren't just glorified accelerometers anymore. Year by year, these companies have been adding other kinds of sensors, like LEDs that reflect infrared light off your blood to measure your blood oxygen level, a gyroscope to measure swimming strokes, an altimeter to measure flights of stairs, ECG electrodes to detect heart conditions, electrodermal activity contacts to detect micro-sweat on your skin, a sign of stress, a thermometer to measure your skin temperature. All these sensors throw off mountains of real-time data, but we've only begun to sift through it to draw useful conclusions. Here's a classic example. The latest Fitbit watches have microphones. If you've subscribed to Fitbit's premium plan for 80 bucks a year, one of the features you get is snore detection. I'll let co-founder Eric Friedman describe it. So snore detection is really exciting. We can figure out what you do that's causing those snores. Is it from drinking? Is it from like how you're sleeping? Is it how your pillows are set up? And so part of it's stuff that we can tell you, but part of it's helping the user kind of do that journey of self-discovery uh, to drive, you know, what, what's causing it. But right now, the Fitbit doesn't do much with the snoring information. For example, it doesn't vibrate to wake you, so you stop. It just shows you on your phone the next morning how long you snored, and how loud you were. But as I see it, that could be useful diagnostic information. And then figure out what can you do with that information is the, is the next step. Obviously, sleep apnea is a disease where people stop breathing, and then you often hear a loud snore or snort thereafter. I think there's other things involved in screening and checking for sleep apnea. And then ideally, I'd love to start measuring like you know, how is it impacting your focus, your cognition throughout the day. The sensors on wearables aren't generally as accurate as hospital gear, but in combination, and with the benefit of machine learning algorithms that have petabytes of real-world data to analyze, they could easily become a reliable canary in the coal mine for all kinds of medical problems. Take COVID, please. In May last year, Fitbit conducted an opt-in study of 100,000 of its customers— At that point, a 1,000 of them had contracted COVID. That gave their company's researchers a remarkable opportunity. They could look backward through those people's data to see if maybe somewhere in all those biometric recordings there were any early signs that indicated a COVID infection. Incredibly, the answer was yes. They discovered that your breathing rate goes up, your resting heart rate goes up, and your pulse variability goes down usually a day or two before you feel any symptoms, and even before you'd register positive on a test. I know this isn't, you know, FDA approved and all that stuff, but the early data did seem to indicate that a wearable could, in theory, pick up on an infection before the person did. Very very much so, yeah. I'm sure you guys must have put thought into the broader notion of our wearables warning us of afflictions before we or our doctors know about them. A lot of these similar measurements have been used to kind of build models around detection of diabetes, hypertension, various psychological things like high stress or depression. And so then the question is, so okay, so we can measure something's different. 
what is the right thing to do? We want to be very respectful of the medical community. If we tell people, hey, this might be an issue, or let's say we're right 85% of the time, we'd hate to deluge the medical system. And the other one is like, if you tell them they don't have the disease, what's the chance they don't? And so we don't. How do you measure these things? To see how all this might work, consider an early warning feature that already exists. Atrial fibrillation is the world's most common heart rhythm abnormality. Five million Americans have it. It's when the top chambers of the heart sometimes quiver instead of pumping. Your blood doesn't move, and it clots. In 35% of AFib patients, these clots break off and float into the brain, causing a stroke. It's bad news. Now, if you know you have atrial fibrillation, you can take blood thinners. But AFib is intermittent. It doesn't quiver all the time. If you take the test at your annual checkup, it's entirely possible that the doctor won't witness it. That's why having a wearable on your wrist all the time is so important. The latest Apple Watches and Fitbit Watches have built-in ECG, electrocardiogram, that can detect signs of AFib and warn you. This feature has already saved lives. We did um, our AFib trials and our ECG trials, and for those things, you're telling someone they've got a heart disease. You want to have a really high view of that you're right so that we don't freak people out, but we also get them aware of what's going on. So take it one step further. So then what are your hopes and expectations about where this kind of uh, notification will, will wind up? I think there's some diseases where, where it's like, hey, something's changing, and how do we help you with changing? So like, for example, even if we can't uh, detect diabetes, can we detect that something is changing, that you might want to start walking more and drive various behavioral changes such that there's no medication involved. Um, yeah, we spent the first 10 years of Fitbit focused on making the invisible visible. Like, how do you kind of show this data? And I, I think we've been pivoting over the last several years of, like, really talking a lot more about health. Before I ended the conversation with Eric Friedman, it occurred to me, I had the freaking chief technology officer of Fitbit on the line. Who gets a chance like this to speak directly to the horse's ear? So I let him have it. My dream is for Fitbit to take all this data someday. I mean, you know so much. You know my age, my weight. You know where I live. And by where I live, you also know the air quality and the pollen count and the temperature outside and the weather. For anyone who bothers to record their food and drink in the app, you know what we're eating and drinking. I mean, it seems like someday you could present us with some astonishing insights you know, like on the days that you run, you fall asleep 50% faster. Or when you have wine within four hours of bedtime, you wake up five more times a night. It could even be like, we noticed that when you're at your mother-in-law's house in Ohio, you get no sleep. I would love the app to draw conclusions like that. Is that on the roadmap someday of, of like these actionable tidbits that comes from analyzing all this data? Uh, well, so short answer is, Yes, that's always the holy grail of where we want to be. Now, we want to do that also in a very privacy-respectful way so we, people don't get freaked out like, oh my God, I didn't think you knew this about me. Right. It's actually not that far off. We refer to them as insights. But yeah, we, we are actually trying to already surface insights like this. Well, we'll, we'll come right back here in 2031 and uh, we'll see how you've fared on these projects. And hopefully we can both talk about how the, our Fitbit has kept us healthy. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. 
Unsung Science with David Pogue is presented by Simon & Schuster and CBS News and produced by PRX Productions. The executive producers for Simon & Schuster are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and the project manager is Ian Fox. The amazing Jesse Nelson composed the unsung science theme music, and fact-checker Christina Ribello positioned herself nobly between my scripts and certain humiliation. For more unsung science episodes, visit unsungscience.com. And for more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter at Pogue, P-O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and subscribe to Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, would you? Thanks for listening. If you like Unsung Science, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.